Welcome to Mama's the Podcast. We are your hosts, Sky Gooden and Lauren Wetmore. So, Lauren, what's on top this week? Well, for the second episode of this season, I spoke to the critic Tusif Noor, and I had the pleasure of meeting him during the MoMA's Emerging Critics Residency, where you invited him to share some of his experiences as an art writer. Mm. So I think Tusif has been a contributing editor at MoMA's for a few years now, right? Yeah, he joined us uh, in 2016 with um, an incredibly risk-taking piece on Kahindi Wiley and sort of the measure of his uh, portraiture and symbology in the American South uh, during protests around monuments um, that were sort of actively taking place. And of course, we would see reverberations of that. Sorry, I'm just realizing it was at the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts. Right. So, we started sort of like a crack and and from there he's gone on to to write you know position taking brave and and also deeply personal texts for us that are fairly astonishing for an emerging critic i mean at the time anyway um he was just starting to to cut his teeth and within you know months of publishing with momus um he was publishing with art forum regularly and has gone on to even write features for them at this point so he's had a really sharp trajectory and ascent i would say um Mm -hmm. and i always value talking to him about what that has meant for him and, and how he's thread the needle for instance around maintaining a kind of uh, I think flexibility and alacrity within within the kinds of subjects that he covers. What I mean today will be a great example of just that. Right. Yeah. I mean the the reason I was immediately drawn to Tusef was during his talk for the for the residency. Um, I was drawn to, of course, his you know generous intelligence, but also because he initially, without any comment put a slide up on the Zoom uh, screen share thing that featured the first line of the text that I'm, I'm going to interview him about or that you'll hear the interview for. So it was just this text behind him talking, you know, about his career and his position. And it was, yeah, it was this line. Like writing, fisting is both a replicable skill and a rarefied art form. <laughs> I was like, I mean, you have to admire that kind of like swagger. Absolutely. He's like, yes, we're talking about art writing, but also I'm here for a conversation about deep fucking. (laughs) And I love that this is like a Fulbright scholar. Right. (laughs) Attended Goldsmiths and is currently undertaking a a PhD at the University of California, Berkeley. Like this is, this is a rare, you don't square these things in your mind very easily, right? Absolutely. (laughs) And it's like, if you know, if you've spoken to me for more than five minutes, you know that I am exclusively here for squaring these two things, right? (laughs) Because I feel like matters of like the body and sex and the sensual world are are kind of actively, often actively shut out of cultural conversations. Or at least I feel when I try to bring it up, it's sort of... (laughs) You get shut out? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's fair to interpolate that as a universal. <laughs> I believe you've seen it happen. <laughs> but, I, but I've often been made to feel as though like that kind of conversation is sort of denigrating to this rarefied world, right? Mm. Um, but I believe that, you know, even a canonical understanding of the history of art has shown that there is this, like deep metaphorical and literal links between these two things. Um, 
and it's it's something I always long for for writers to take up, mm. uh, you know, this gesture of also incorporating kind of queer erotics into a world of critical discourse. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I feel like the way that Tusif's review takes this up creates this kind of elevated format for criticism, where the practice of how he is writing about a work of literature is actually a parallel to the way that that work of literature operates. And we get into those some of those kinds of parallels between his review and the book that he's reviewing mm-hmm. um, in really interesting ways. Uh, and I'm also really keen, I hope that you discuss his choice to bring it to Art Forum. Do you get into that, the, the choice of platform? Yeah, definitely. He speaks really highly of working with Art Forum, which is always kind of a nice thing to, to hear about, like, one of these larger and more prestigious publications, um, somebody having a positive experience with them. Mm -hmm. It does seem to be increasingly rare. Definitely. And particularly for a piece like this that, yeah, if if even the first line gives any kind of indication, you know, this isn't kind of your milk toast descriptive art, quote unquote, criticism. This is something that's going to be taking a swing. Right. That's exciting. (laughs) (laughs) Here is Tusev Noor reading his text, Hand in Glove, which is a review of William E. Jones's book, I'm Open to Anything, and was published by Art Forum in April 2019. Like writing, fisting is both a replicable skill and a rarefied art form. Performance improves with practice, preparation is necessary, and the deeper you go, the closer you get to the heart of the matter. The movements of manipulating a pen were not so different from what I did to manipulate a man's innards. One activity made the other possible, says the nimble, perspicacious narrator of I'm Open to Anything, the first novel by the artist, filmmaker, and writer William E. Jones. The protagonist comes to this realization near the end of the book, finally learning something useful about himself after feeling paralyzed, silenced by formal education. During high school in his dying industrial Midwest town, where his erudition far surpasses that of his teachers, he is threatened with punishment for writing a treatise on James Enzer's 1899 print, Doctrinal Nourishment. This image of the masses gobbling up shit for a homework assignment. The college to which he escapes is no better, full of shallow, intolerant hacks who differ from his childhood classmates only by their tax bracket. Peerless, friendless, our protagonist royals, tightly shut against the world. Only his reticence provides readers with sympathetic insight into his repressed desires. That phrase, repressed desires, is hackneyed, marred by romanticism, but its modifier serves as the epistemic key to Jones of. For nearly three decades, Jones has made a career of investigating culture's fringes, plunging into forgotten histories at the intersection between homosexual desire and the banal injunctions that mark it as perverse. Jones's expansive intellectual territory is marked in one direction by the porn industry, in which he worked for a number of years as an archivist, and in another by experimental cinema. 
He moves fluidly between the two to produce works that peel eroticism free from its sentimental associations. In his first feature-length film, Finished, and from 1997, his object petit art is Alain Lambert, a Quebecois porn star, graduate student, and Marxian eschatologist who commits suicide in a public square in Montreal, leaving behind a bizarre, rambling note. Jones interviews Lambert's friends and lovers in an effort to get close to the man he would never know. They speak of Lambert's suicidal thoughts, his faith in capitalism's impending demise, and his belief in reincarnation. The filmmaker expressed a surprise that such complex issues would preoccupy a gay porn model. Lambert's friends corrects Jones's taxonomy. Alan Lambert was a performer, not a model, because having sex with a stranger on film required some skills in acting. Traversing the life of the mind and the flesh is what animates I'm Open to Anything, which gains momentum after our narrator moves westward to Los Angeles. He spends his time watching movies or reading in his room, ripping through a novel a day and feeding his pretenses and pet theories, such as his conviction that those who didn't read simply didn't exist as humans. He literalizes the John Waters maxim-turned-meme. Whenever I entered the house of an acquaintance, I'd gravitate to the bookshelves. If I found that this person had no books, I would turn around and leave without a word, taking the next bus back home. But L.A. is not all study, or if it is, there's some degree of hands-on learning. Our protagonist frequents gay bars, noting with disdain the conformity pervading these spaces, driven by an aspiring professional class of men who didn't want to waste their time chatting up or fucking or possibly dating someone without a college education. He seeks out the outcasts who appear in this novel, as often in life, as characters, such as a paraplegic prostitute named Goddess Bunny, a former independent film darling turned underground celebrity. But while nightlife expands his social horizons, he remains unsatisfied by days of menial work in a video store. He remembers a quote by Joe Brainerd, after an unsuccessful night, Going around to queer bars, I come home and say to myself, art. Writing provides the only solution to our narrator's quandary, but he initially struggles to plumb his depths effectively to produce something he's proud of. His carnal pursuits offer a substitute, and the act of brachioproctic insertion becomes a conduit for him to get to know others intimately. If in his films, Jones shies away from depicting sex acts, his writing here is graphic, titillating. Our narrator describes the first time he fists a lover named Raoul, whom he meets at his day job, as feeling like a cork popping, but in reverse. I hate the next man you'll fist, says Raoul. You're learning very quickly, and by the time you meet that man, you'll be an expert. Their tryst is passionate, but brief. Raoul soon leaves Los Angeles for, fittingly, graduate school. Interspersed throughout the novel are digressions on Rainier Werner Fassbender, American foreign policy, aesthetic changes to gay porn following the AIDS crisis, the gay porn star Fred Halstead, and the literary style of the Argentine modernist Osvaldo Lamborghini all signposts of Jones's own sprawling artistic interests. 
our narrator, referred twice to in the text by a pet name, Guillermito, glosses his intellectual and aesthetic preoccupations, sometimes to a plottingly didactic effect, but this is countered by his self-awareness and his stirring polemics against the neoliberal regime, the failings of academia, and the callous cruelty of American empire. He knows that to idealize a former condition of queer life, one where subculture meant political beliefs and sexual practices that threatened normative heterosexual comfort, is to risk fetishizing a state of oppression. Yet he cannot help but rail against the encroachment of capital on the revolutionary potential of homosexuality, bemoaning that many of his peers have accepted in place of the disciplinary state apparatus, another regime of power, a liberated consumer culture that does not punish the perverts, but rather, in a multitude of ways, encourages them to conform. He doesn't dwell on this wistfulness, instead channeling it into incendiary outrage and posting a pressing question. Given the possibility of a radically liberated world, why would anyone settle for something so vapid, so dull? Writing in the London Review of Books in 1995, Edmund White noted that in recounting historical struggle, the contemporary gay novel exemplified dissident literature, and that in alternating between an idealized life and documenting that life's unique qualities, it was a form best suited to the genre of autofiction. I'm open to anything, with its imbrication of pornography, its cultural criticism, and its nostalgic depiction of a former Los Angeles, does this with great dexterity, shoving into the gaping American id a necessary reckoning of queer consciousness vis-a-vis -a, -vis a Bildungsroman of sexual transgression. As the idiosyncrasies of queer life are subsumed by the shadow of neoliberal assimilation, wiped clean of their filth and force, this spry novel imparts the very useful lesson that prurience, erudition, deviance, those hallmarks of the homosexual, can all be effective means to self-actualization. You can very well add that to the list of things they don't teach you in school. <laughs> Thank you. Mm -hmm. There are so many good lines in that text. <laughs> it's it's nice to go back and read it. <laughs> is it? Nice? Yeah, it, it's. I I rarely <laughs> think that, but it it's something that I actually enjoy reading, uh, even though I wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I once was uh, at a poetry reading, or maybe it wasn't a poetry reading. That seems like something I would be unlikely to attend, but a writer was reading their own work and got up on stage and said, um, Ugh, a writer reading their own work is like a dog returning to their sick. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I, I would... I think I feel like that 99% of the time, but yeah. with this piece, I think I was so invested in it because of what its political themes were, because of the style of writing that um, Bill Jones has. It's very, the narrator is um, snarky. He's very 
he's very jaded. And I think that Mm. it's such a pleasure to read it. And I, when I was writing this piece, I wanted to do both Jones, the narrator, and the book justice. Um, But I felt really emotionally invested in it. These are things that I really feel passionate about and I think about often. And I just wanted to do as good of a job as I could because I was imagining the narrator reading it, if that makes sense. Right. (laughs) Yeah, that does make sense. So I was going to ask, did you feel like you were emulating the narrator? But it seems like, no, you felt like you were maybe performing for the narrator. I was trying to impress him. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) and that's really interesting because do you see the narrator as being separate from bill jones the author because there there is that question in writing reviews uh be it of artwork or of a book where you i mean you tell me are you thinking about the person the artist the writer um, and are you writing it for them or with them or against them? See, that, that that's a great question for this book in particular because it is so ambiguous. Um, the narrator of the text shares a lot of details with uh, Bill Jones. So growing up in a small town, going away to college, feeling disappointed by that, and then moving to Los Angeles, working in, in porn. I think those things uh, made me think, okay, there's something interesting going on here that Bill is doing with authorship. So that um, tradition of autofiction, which you see a lot more in sort of the French literary tradition of um, details that the character shares with an author, but it's not necessarily the author. And I think that is something that I tried to play pay close attention to is how how are how is bill sort of working with that ambiguity and in terms of who i was trying to impress i mean with someone like bill jones i um i've just been an admirer of of his work for so long and i've i've me really, too. I really like his work. And it's funny, after this, I did end up going to uh, getting to meet him. And we went to a gallery show together oh, wow. in New York, which was great. But I really had in mind this narrator, because I think I identified with the narrator quite a bit. Um, the sort of precociousness is something that I think is so charming, um, even even when it's a little bit um, aggravating because I, I remember being uh, in high school in my small town and just not feeling understood by anyone, um, not really, you know, feeling that I had a place, reading things that weren't on the syllabus or uh, any all of that sort of stuff. Um, I wasn't quite as erudite, but I do think that I was trying to impress this person because I knew that he doesn't stand for any bullshit. And that that's the kind of writing that I think really impresses me as well. But I did, I did want to sort of inflect a little bit of style because I think style is a way of signaling a kind of shared erudition, but also a kind of sympathetic, sympathetic kind of relationship to somebody where it's like, 
even if you're not interested in William E. Jones's art or gay porn or, you know, all of these concerns, maybe you'll get something out of it uh, through the reading experience. Um, and that's hmm. and that's something that I wanted to sort of emulate. Just to go back to this idea of autofiction then and maybe the idea of you emulating uh, Bill's strategies in the text in your in your review. I want to return to that first line, that epic first line. Like writing, fisting is both a replicable skill and a rarefied art form. Is that something you knew before you read Bill's book? <laughs> or is it a realization you came to in writing this review? Or I think it's, my question is, do you remember that line coming to you? Yeah. Like, do you remember where you were when that line came to you? <laughs> you know, I, um, one of the things that I will say that I really enjoy about doing book reviews, um, let's uh, over, I, I, you know, I mostly write exhibition reviews or essays about visual art, um, but I also write book reviews. And with book reviews, I have a little bit of more lead time with writing it. Mm -hmm. So I spend, I'm a, I'm a pretty fast reader. So I get to spend a lot of time thinking about the book, thinking about different aspects of the book. And I, it just marinates a little bit more, but, yeah. um, I do remember actually where I was. I was actually at the I was at the grocery store, and I was just saying. And um, with with writing book reviews too, what I do is um, I I write notes on my notes app on in my phone. So I'll just be right. like on the train or you know uh, wherever, and whenever an idea comes to me, I'll just I'll just write it down. It, it, it helps to let that sort of sink in. So I remember being at the grocery store and I was just like, okay, what is he doing? Writing fisting. And I'm like, yes, there's, there is a relationship. So, so, <laughs> so, so yeah, I remember jotting that down. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, I guess I did know a little bit about, Fisting. <laughs> so, so yeah, it, it, clearly metaphor. Yeah, sure. yeah, exactly. So um, it did feel really apt, and I will say that having that first line, like let it, being yeah. able to keep that, made the yeah. made writing the reviews so much more fun. And like, it, I had fun. I don't have fun writing ever, ever. Right. I had fun writing this. <laughs> yeah. I want to get back to that question yeah. later, but I first want to um, talk about keeping that first line off the chopping block. And I mean, I guess the thing is, is if Art Forum is going to commission a review of a book, you know, by William E. Jones, then they're going to have to expect that there's a certain amount of content. Um, but was it a struggle to keep that line in? Was there any pushback or was it kind of received... Were they open to anything? They, I am going to shout out my amazing editors at the time, uh, Lauren O'Neill Butler and Jennifer Krasinski, who are two of the best editors and so open. And having mm. that kind of freedom is rare. I'm not, you know, mm -hmm. a seasoned writer by any means. And for me to be able to 
just go there and have that creativity and really say what I want to say um, is so rare. I love that they are willing to take risks. I think they're willing to take risks with writers, which is really mm-hmm. rare, young writers. You know, that, that's just mm-hmm. that's just incredible. So, um, and I've worked with them a bunch there. Um, sadly, I think that I haven't written anything as kind of juicy since then, but I, <laughs> I know that like, their encouragement and their support is the reason why I was able to write this piece at all. And I think that, you know, with particularly regarding queer subjects and queer art, I've always felt supported there. I've, you know, I wrote about a lesbian haunted house last year for Art Forum, and it is all credit to them. When you're writing about these things that you feel very passionate about and you have that support, it just lets you write the things you want to write and it lets you write better. You know, I, I do think that there is a kind of relationship between artistic freedom and quality. Um, and I think that is actually also at the heart of Bill Jones's work. It's how do we see inner society becoming more focused on assimilation, for more focused on conformity and not only do people suffer under that, but art suffers under that. And I think being able to recognize that within this text through reading this book um, and having the support of my editors was what made this process so great. Can you talk a little bit more about maybe experiences outside of Art Forum where you have wanted to address similar kind of subject matter and felt pushback? Is that is that a reality in your in your practice, in your career? You know, it's funny. Um, I do, you know, write about queer art and queer literature for other venues. And I, I felt supported, but I don't think that there's anywhere else that I would, I would personally just want to take risks. So, you know, I, I right. could write about, I write about queer art um, for freeze, for moments, for lots of different places. And I've always felt supported. But in terms of being able to take a risk that I'm not even really sure where it's going to go, um, right. I've I felt that art form is the venue where I've tried that the most. Um, but mm-hmm. I also, you know, I do think that I do have support from other editors because they know I've written things like this, <laughs> that, yeah, yeah. that that they are willing to do that. So I, I, I don't feel restricted at all. Um, I, you know, I wonder though, like, I want to be inspired by like art and and literature to write something like this again. And it's, I haven't felt that in a while. You know, it, it's less so the, the sort of freedom so much as like, you know, what am I looking at that um, yeah. really pushes me there? And I think Bill Jones's work has always done that for me. Yeah. Do you ever have that fear after you finish writing something that you're really happy with that like that was the last thing you're ever going to write? Yes. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) All the time. (laughs) Again, again, I I actually don't, I mean, this may be bad for me to say, but like, I don't enjoy the writing process. No, let's talk about that. It's awful. It is the worst thing. And it's funny because (laughs) I really love looking at art. I love watching films. I love reading all those things. I have so much fun 
doing it and, and thinking about it and talking to people about it. But when it comes to <laughs> getting my words, it always it always feels like there's a mismatch between like what I'm really thinking and what I really want to say. And with this text, actually, I remember, you know, I had some time. I had some time to let it kind of stew, you know, leave it for a little bit, come back to it. And that's where I was able to really make the edits and the tinkering that I really wanted to do with it. Um, and I had a lot of editorial help. But I, I do think that, you know, it's such an overstated thing, but editing is really where the writing happens. And hmm. um, for someone like me, like, who doesn't actually like to like read their own work, editing isn't fun hmm. at all. Right. So, so do you edit yourself as you write or do you just write and send it off? Uh, <laughs> most people, I, you know, my editors will hate that I say this, but mostly I just write and send it off. If I were a different person, uh, which is to say that if I started things as early as I, you know, should have, right. <laughs> I yes. would do this. The procrastination piece. is such an essential part of that kind of like self-punishing spiral yes. of writing. <laughs> yes. To extend your metaphor when he's talking about the first time the narrator fists Raul and it feels like a cork popping, but in reverse, that's the exact description of what it feels like to write something. Isn't that great? I just, it's such a, it's a line that happens in dialogue. It's not even just like, you know, the okay. narrator um, as an aside. And it's so apt. Two questions about the kind of mechanics of writing something like this. Do you approach reviewing a book in a different way than you would approach uh, reviewing a work of art or an exhibition? Or do you use the same kinds of strategies of uh, analysis and expression? In terms of strategies, they're very similar. So I, I start with the work first. You always have to start with the work first, you know, whether mm -hmm. that's a painting, whether that's a film, whether that's a book. Um, I try to read it as thoroughly as possible. With a book, um, I will say, you know, if it's really long, it's hard to read it twice. But, um, okay. but you know, with a work of art, um, spend as much time in front of it as possible. But with a book, I, I do go back, you know, I read it, I underline, I, you know, take notes, but then I go back and and mm. think about the things that really stuck out to me. Think, think about those things. Um, and then I always do research. No matter what I'm writing, yeah. I always have to do research, whether it's about the artist or writer, their life, their biography, the context in which they were making this work. Um, but also works around it. You know, who were their peers? Yeah. Who? What, what context is this coming out of? So for Bill Jones, I watched all his films actually um, before writing this, even though it came out to what, like three or four sentences total in the review, um, just mentioning brief things. But I felt yeah. that it is important for someone like, okay, like Alan Lambert, Marxian mm -hmm. eschatologist, gay porn star, you know, there, there are so many parallels. You know, Jones is interested to come to that conclusion that the life of the mind, the life of the flesh are something that like really pervade his work. I did have to spend a lot of time researching and being familiar with this work. You want to understand that 
works of art don't don't occur in a vacuum, right? So whether it's in the context of the artist, of even it's something radically different from what they've done before. So this is a different form that he's worked in, but he's working with the same themes. Um, right. I think with art writing, though, I will say one thing that is a little bit different is that I am, and this is just kind of like a product of how I was trained in school. I am a bit more of a formalist um, when it hmm. comes to art writing. So I pay attention to color and facture and composition a bit more um, than, you know, when I'm writing about text and I'm analyzing, let's say, like every little sentence. Hmm. Yeah. I see. Um, I think that partially has to do with just the length, but also um, I understand that with, Often with works of art, um, even though not everyone's going to see it, um, you want to do a little bit more description to help people, you know, what are they looking at? Whereas, mm -hmm. uh, and with books, I think, um, yes, like not everyone is going to read it, but I do find it a little bit more accessible for, or are likely that someone might buy the book and read mm -hmm. it themselves. So um, I, I try to focus on like a bit more of a, Bird's eye view, whereas mm -hmm. I think with visual art, I do try to be a little bit more formalist, just because mm -hmm. I think it's helpful to ground people to know what they're looking at. Right. Yeah. I think that idea of um, or this conversation about how much description of of a work is necessary, you know, pervades both practices. I mean, how much are you going to describe a work or a show? How much are you going to give the entire kind of synopsis of the book? Um, that is such a tricky thing because it's so often done way too much. You know, it's so, it's so often that a review will not be a review, but in fact, just a precis of the, whatever it is that it's reviewing. So how do you try to strike a balance between, between those two? The, it's hard. <laughs> it is often yeah. the, the hardest thing, um, that I'm doing because I think, you know, you have to spend time with whatever it is that you're mm -hmm. writing about and thinking about it. So, you know, I always start with the formalist aspects and the description and then try to, it follows the kind of structure. So like, what is it? What am I looking at? Um, then what is it doing? How is it doing that? What are the broader kind of implications or themes? Um, but when you get to that point, you, you might've written like, a page <laughs> and and you only right. have 500 words so you gotta, you gotta right. narrow it down um but i always think it's helpful to follow that structure because hmm. once you can follow your own train of thought then you might be able to say okay so i got from point a to point d how do i condense that for uh the purposes of my review such that another person can also get from point A to point mm -hmm. D, but maybe in half the time. I'm one of those people that I don't, <laughs> I can't really think unless I'm writing. <laughs> you know, right. I'm the same way. Coming to a conclusion needs to happen by writing about something. Right, 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 right. Maybe that's a little bit different with a book review for me, because whereas like, you know, I'm I'm having like a conversation with myself in the notes or with the author in the notes and right. then you know and then my notes that I'm writing are 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 sort of the condensed version of that but with like an art piece a visual art piece I'm just like 
okay, I need to have a dialogue with someone. It's usually myself. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. I do the same thing. Like I'll write notes and then I'll come back to it and say, okay, now I'm writing the actual thing. And I find that a lot can change between the notes document and the actual writing document. Oh, yeah. So how much do you feel like your notes are actually um, the ground that that text sits on? So I have this horrible problem where, especially if it's like a film or a book, um, where I'm not sort of wedded to being in the gallery and writing about it, um, I can just like type furiously on my computer. I, I write way too much. I'll have like pages and pages of notes. I'm just like, this actually is not helpful. It's it's, because (laughs) because then I'll get, I'll open my new Word doc to write the actual piece. And I'm like, I'm so overwhelmed. I have no idea what to do. And what I found is helpful for me now is to write complete thoughts when I have them. Hmm. Um, because then they could just go into the text, you know, (laughs) instead of being like, like bullet points, bullet points that go on for pages, I can just be like, okay, like this is the thought that I had and not just this random assemblage of, of points. Um, because I think it forces you to like, okay, write in complete sentences to someone and then it becomes easier to write and complete sentences for the draft. That's funny. Do you think that you're slowly cutting out the middleman of the notes and that eventually in some kind of like future perfect world of your writing practice, you'll just be able to write it like top to bottom without stopping? In a perfect world, that would be amazing. <laughs> but even, even my, um, you know, complete sentences trick uh, yeah. doesn't mean they're necessarily complete thoughts. <laughs> right. Sure, so, so, I th- so I think that, but, but you, you know, you mentioned there is this process. There is more a bit of an organic process of, of thinking of, okay, like, okay, what ideas am I developing? What, what am I... Um, what does this make me think of that I wasn't thinking of previously? That's why I do Mm -hmm. think it is, you know, make the time, carve out the time to Mm -hmm. have time to give yourself some space between it. Um, And then you'll come back and be like, okay, wait, let me synthesize this. Let me, let me like, this is actually like an underdeveloped thought. Let me develop that a little bit more. And that'll just be, that'll make the writing process so much easier. Um, yeah. but yeah, it, the, the complete sentences thing, that's only something I've discovered in the past, like six months. <laughs> How do you decide what you want to write about? I want to know kind of all of the answers to that question, because I know that there's writing one does because one feels passionately. And there's also writing one does because one needs to publish something or fulfill a promise or get some money or, you know, but what, um, what are the aspects that will draw you to a work of art that make you want to write about it? Honestly, for up until very, very recently, I was writing about anything and everything because I needed the money, because I needed to publish, because I felt like I had to produce. Right. Um, now I wouldn't write about like, 
everything because there there are some things that I just don't know about and I don't and I love doing research and I love learning about things as I write. My focus, my specialization in grad school is South Asian modern contemporary art. I I, I like to write about a wide variety of contemporary art um, because I do think that I do have a perspective on it and I can mm-hmm. offer a perspective on it. Um, I'm less sure about certain periods in in art history because I just think that there's so much out there and I would be bogged down in familiarizing myself um, with writing about it. Even though, you know, I have the research skills to do it, I I just don't know that I would be doing anything particularly new or fresh. Um, Um, With other things, you know, I, I consume a lot of media. I read a lot of books. I watch a lot of movies. So the things that I'm drawn to, I've developed a taste for, let's say, um, things that are a bit more underground, things that are a bit more relevant to particular communities. So queer communities is something that I'm definitely interested in. I'm interested in politically subversive things. You know, like I do believe that there is a close relationship between art and politics, and I'm interested in art that does have a political resonance. So those are things I'm more drawn to. And um, I, I can't, get super excited i mean i can i I appreciate you know beautiful aesthetic things but like i can't get super excited about artists who consciously declare themselves apolitical um that's just it's just not something that i would want to write about so those are the things that i'm drawn to i suppose hmm yeah i mean i think that that artist is delusional (laughs) i mean it it's definitely a statement you can make. I don't really agree with it, but but you know, like I wouldn't be interested in 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 writing about someone who felt that way. Right. Indeed. Yeah. yeah. You're the first interview I'm doing for this series, um, and we were thinking about maybe doing like a rapid fire question, but it's so many of the questions that were on the rapid fire list have already been answered. So I'm just kind of I just think that we could go through it. And these are questions that you should just kind of answer super quickly. So when do you write? At night. (laughs) (laughs) Late at night. Late at night. Do you write late at night the day before the deadline? Um, Yes, often. (laughs) I'll just be honest. Yeah, I do. Yes, please. (laughs) I do. Okay. How much do you use a thesaurus? Um, rarely. If, really? Uh, yeah, if at all. Okay, then I need to ask you about this uh, this word, brachioproctic. Okay. Um, <laughs> I was Googling fisting. <laughs> As you <know. laughs> came up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the that word term. is that is new to me and I love it. Yeah. I want to use it in daily life. Yeah. Um, uh, who do you write for? Ah, uh, great question. I write for, honestly, people who love art and literature. I'm probably not writing to a general audience. <laughs> do you ever write under the influence? No, I can't. Oh, my God. <laughs> 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 Never has been successful at all. Okay. <laughs> what is your mise-en-scene? Do you have to have everything in a particular place, or can you just kind of flop down and get to it? Oh, my God, no. I, I'm, like hunched over at my desk (laughs) in like a dirty old sweatshirt like 
freaking out. <laughs> <laughs> just sweating. Yeah, just sweating. Again, I don't. I, it's, I am not like a fun writer at all. <laughs> no, I understand that completely. Where do you begin? How do you know how to start a story or where a story starts? Um, I always have to start at the intro. I'm not one of those people who can just like start writing from the middle or start with a conclusion. Starting is the hardest part for me because I have to start with an intro and I do feel like I have to start with a clinching sentence. So, um, that, that takes up honestly most of my time. (laughs) And then how do you know when it's done? Uh, it's like due. <laughs> or it's overdue. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> it just has to get out. <laughs> Which writer do you emulate the most? Oh, God. Uh, I don't know that I emulate a writer at all yet. But if I could, and people that I think about often are um, Rhonda Lieberman, Bruce Hanley, Wayne Kustenbaum. Uh, These are people that I just think are so amazing. And I don't think I write like them at all. But if I could write like a writer, I would write like any of those people. Hmm. And how many references are too many references? Um, When you don't know what you're talking about and you're trying to pad with references, um, I'll just say it's pretty easy to tell. And I know because I've done it. Um, So references that illuminate and open up the thought that, but don't distract from the subject. I think that's like a good amount. And the last question is, what is the best part about writing art criticism for you? What is the pleasure of it? I mean, the pleasure of writing at all is definitely having written, but I think <laughs> I think the, the best part of art criticism is particularly when I, um, you know, I'm not out to necessarily please the subject at all, but when the subject does read it and they're like, even if, you know, it's a bit critical and they're like, this is something I enjoyed reading, I feel good. When you met Bill, did had he read the review? He did. Uh, and, and what did he say? Yeah, he said, you know, he he's like he's like the the plottingly didactic part. He was like, you know, like that was intentional. Like I I wanted to educate people, but I think you got, I think you got it. Um, and I should say he's working on the follow up to this, so he's writing the second um portion of this narrator's life in another novel so I'm very much looking forward to that yeah that's exciting is there anything else you wanted to add or um yeah I would like to say you know this came out from a small publisher please support small publishers please support your local bookstores your local artists who are not you know producing work necessarily for mega galleries or mega publishers or anything Now more than ever, I think it's really important if you like something aesthetically, artistically, try to support it because it might not exist. I mean, I think one of the things the book shows is that like we are living at a time where capitalism is encroaching on every aspect of our lives. And that includes any sort of aesthetic outlet, too. So 
the mega publishers are never going to publish something like this. Honestly, they really won't. So you have to support the artist books stores. You have to support the small publishers, the small presses, the, you know, tiny galleries that are making art that does challenge the status quo. Because otherwise, we will live in a world that's just gray and boring and dull and meaningless. Life without some kind of access to reading about fisting is no life at all. It really is. It really isn't. Um, how else are you going to learn how to do it? Exactly. Well, <laughs> got to be hands on. <laughs> <laughs> Momus the Podcast is edited by Jacob Irish with assistant production from Mitra Shiram. This season's music is written by Ulysses Castellanos, a piece titled Gonzalo on the Beach, with source material from Charlie Hayden and Gonzalo Rubalcalva. We would like to thank Tosif Noor for his excellent contribution to this season, and a special thanks to all those of you who are supporting the podcast. Yes, it very much makes a difference. This is a hard-hit year for us, as of course it is for so many. If you do find yourself in a position to support us, even as little as $5 a month can genuinely make an impact uh, in terms of the longevity and health of this podcast. Uh, Thanks to you, though, who are already chipping in. and, And for those who can't, we're just grateful to have you as an audience all the same. This has been episode 26 of Momus, the podcast.